Hey, it's Meg. You know which episodes I love most in our feed? The ones produced by co-op students. And this is one of them. Today's episode is produced and hosted by Sarah Bon, a current arts and business student majoring in English, language, and literature. I hope you enjoy her work as much as I do. Keep listening. I think what inclusive language does is that it recognizes that words matter, that images matter, and that these can be used intentionally or unintentionally to include or exclude others. And why would you not want to use language that communicates with people respectfully and, and brings everyone into the conversation? Why would you not want to do that? Why is inclusive language important in communications? And why should institutions care about being diverse and inclusive? With the mainstream push for more conversations about dismantling oppressive narratives, these questions have been on the rise for communicators and organizations. Today, I'll be speaking to Tracelyn Cornelius, a PhD student and the anti-racism communications manager at the University of Waterloo. Tracelyn has played a lead role in promoting inclusivity and diversity on campus. We'll discuss her career path, inclusivity, and how her work as a communicator actually led her to pursue further education in sustainability and business. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, I'm delighted to be a guest on Uncharted. I think we're going to have a really great episode and I've been looking forward to this for my whole co-op term. So I'm really thankful that you're able to join us today. So oh, wow, I'm excited to speak to you. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. So you've been working in communications for more than 20 years, but a few years ago, you pursued your Master of Environment and Business. How did you get into communications and why did you later become interested in an environment program? Wow, that's a loaded question. That's the story of my life. So I started out as an educator. I, I have a bachelor's of science in education with a minor in black studies. And I was actually a teacher for about 12 years. I have always had a love for radio. So while I was in college, I applied for a job as a part-time DJ. Um, and I was working doing DJing part-time. Gradually, I was goaded into the newsroom as an anchor to help out with reading the news. Um, I guess they were pleased with the job that I did there because later they sponsored me to take a certificate course in media writing and media production at Park School of Communications in Ithaca, New York. Um, I then became a part-time journalist while teaching full-time. I eventually left teaching altogether to become a journalist full-time for about eight years. My last role in journalism was director of news and current affairs. Um, by that time, I was married and had three young children, and I wanted to make a career change. I felt that journalism was too demanding, and I wanted to do something that was similar, but with less demands. And so I decided to com complete postgraduate studies in strategic communications, public relations, marketing management, and project management um, at the University of Winnipeg. After leaving the University of Winnipeg, I worked for a First Nations school board in Manitoba as a communications officer. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and, and here's where 
um, I talk about like the switch to to moving into um, studying environment and business. So while in this role, I learned something that would change my life. My job entailed traveling to remote communities in Manitoba to visit schools. Um, I would visit schools for things like science fairs, um, special educational events that were happening, graduations, I would report on it, I'll write a newsletter, take images, etc. On my numerous trips, I saw dozens of instances where the environment and the people who lived in these areas were devastated due to negligence on the part of government entities or other businesses who do not really realize that there can be a harmonious blend between business and the environment. And I'll give you an example. Um, in August 2018, a judge approved a $90 million settlement for First Nations in Manitoba who were forced to leave their home in 2011 when the government diverted water from the Assiniboine River to reduce the risk of flooding in Winnipeg. So what happened when they did this is that more than 4,000 people lost their homes and farmland from the resulting surge in water levels. And the class action suit really claimed that the government was negligent. So this was a lose-lose situation. This was not a win-win situation for, for anybody because although the First Nations um, community did win that settlement, because they were displaced, they were forced to move from their homes, they were sent to hotels to live in hotels in Winnipeg. And what that resulted in is a rise, was a rise in suicide, a rise in teenage pregnancies, um, lower educational scores. It was devastating for those families who were uprooted from their homes and their communities and had to live in Winnipeg. And it was also devastating for the government to have to net out $90 million to cover this. And this scenario, unfortunately, is too common in Canada, possibly maybe due to a lack of knowledge about established policies and guidelines to ensure that corporal social, corporate social responsibilities and stakeholder engagements and partnerships go hand in hand. And I felt that there was a need for synergy between managing businesses, objectives, and protecting the environment. So that's when I found the Masters of Environment and Business at the University of Waterloo. So the the MEB, as it's, it's called in a, shorted, in a shortened form, is touted as an MBA with the focus, a focus on the environment. And it had courses like stakeholder engagement, collaboration and partnerships, policy frameworks. And I felt that with my background in education and community engagement, this would be the perfect course for me, the perfect uh, um master's degree for me to really help um, to move forward First Nations communities and Indigenous partnerships with business entities to really improve the environment. But um, that that my research for my research focus would um, would change a little bit um, when I became involved with the president's anti-racism task force. Great. Um, I really like the part you talked about how it's so important for 
organizations to really consider um, how their actions might affect the environment. Um, and as you mentioned, you're a very active person in the university community. Uh, you're an alumnus from the Masters of Environment and Business program, and you work as the anti-racism communications manager at URLU. Plus, you're now a PhD student in the sustainability management program. How does sustainability fit in with your work with inclusivity and diversity? So as I mentioned before, um, when I did undergrad, I minored in Black studies, and that's where I really developed an interest in diversity and inclusivity. Um, Unfortunately, 15 years ago, when I completed uh, undergrad, well, it's probably more than 15 years ago. I'll leave it to that. So I, you know, I don't give any um, clues to my age. But back then, when I completed undergrad, there wasn't a strong focus on equity, diversity and inclusion as it is now. But I had been applying these lenses to my work in communications, to my work in journalism, project management and strategic management throughout my entire um, career. I was asked to join the President's Anti-Racism Task Force to assist with planning and coordinating activities. And I was a member of uh, quite a number of the different um, working groups um, from the President's Anti-Racism Task Force. When I started working with PART, I was also just about to complete my master's degree and was looking on about looking for ideas for my research. I really wanted to ensure that the implementation of PART, the PART recommendations were successful. And so I focused my research on exploring the intersection of equity, diversity and inclusion and sustainable development. And what I found was that core to the definition of sustainable development is that equality was always a fundamental component of sustainability. So if we think about equality as this crucial part of sustainable development, we should really think about dismantling systemic biases, discrimination, and inequities if we're really serious about this work that we're doing for a sustainable future. So I align this premise with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, and I focused on SDG 10, which speaks about reduced inequalities, ensuring no one is left behind, and SDG 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions, promoting peaceful and inclusive societies. And I found that there was a significant research gap in, in this field. And so I was able to make that connection by looking at what are the barriers, opportunities, and recommendations for incorporating or implementing anti-racism recommendations into, um, into educational institutions. And um, that research was really well received. Um, I'm delighted to say that I'm now in the final stages of turning um, that research into a book chapter for a book called 
the book on equity, diversity, and inclusion, and I'll have a chapter in it. And my chapter will focus on direct actions that you can take to ensure the successful implementation of your EDI or anti-racism recommendations. It talks about barriers, it lists barriers, and it talks about specific opportunities. While the research is focused on educational and research institutions, the research is transferable across the board. So it can be transferred to any sort of business entity. And um, I'm extremely proud about that. I was also, so as you mentioned as well, I've since moved on from completing my um, MBA, aka Master's of Environment and Business with SEED. And I joy I applied and was successful in becoming a PhD student. Um, and I'm continuing the research that I started with my master's. I'm looking at knowledge mobilization and equity, the importance of knowledge mobilization and equity, diversity, and inclusion in climate projects, projects to ensure that we are reaching net zero by 2050. Because I believe that if we're really serious about engagement, there is not a solution to the problem. We have to work together to mitigate the problem. And if we're working together, we have to be inclusive and respectful with how we engage with communities and how we mobilize knowledge. So I also did a paper that is also a working paper. It's close to publication and it looked at the current state of equity, diversity, and inclusion in knowledge mobilization. So I am very pleased to be able to con contribute those two unique pieces or unique aspects of um, research, really advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion under the umbrella of sustainable development. Wow, the research that you're doing is just incredible. And it's so great that we have people that are filling that research gap. Um, so you mentioned um, inclusivity, and um, as an English literature major, I'm very interested in how language shapes um, our narratives and our perceptions. So I was wondering, um, in your opinion, what is inclusive language and why is it important for anti-racism? Oh, that's a great question. That's a very good question. So we all know that language is a powerful tool that we use to facilitate shared understanding. We use language to communicate, right? So what we need to understand is that inclusiveness, that sense of feeling like we all belong, is influenced by our everyday words, phrases, and even the images that we use to communicate. So inclusive language is crucial to helping people who have been historically excluded underrepresented or marginalized because of their race, their ethnicity, the gender, sexual orientation, their age, disability status, or, or any other aspects of their identity to feel like they belong. And I say crucial because if we're truly serious about fostering a sense of belonging, we all have a responsibility to remove any words, phrases, or images from our vernacular that may cause harm or provoke trauma. I think it is important that we understand that while inclusive language may 
challenge deeply ingrained habits or beliefs, we have to be intentional in our efforts to foster inclusiveness by committing to continuous learning and using inclusive language. I think what inclusive language does is that it recognizes that words matter, that images matter, and that these can be used intentionally or unintentionally to include or exclude others. And why would you not want to use language that communicates with people respectfully and, and brings everyone into the conversation? Why would you not want to do that? So let me unabashedly plug some work that I've recently been a part of at University Relations. I was a member of a very small steering committee that led the development of an inclusive communications guide. It now lives on our University Relations website at the University of Waterloo. And basically what this guide is, is a sort of consolidation of advice and guidance and tips on ways that we can make professional communications more inclusive for the audiences that we serve. And I was really um, very pleased. It was a year-long effort, and I was really very pleased to be a part of that small committee that that led that initiative. Yeah, um, as somebody who was working as a communications assistant for the university, I did get the opportunity to read that document, and I thought it was very insightful, and I found it very helpful for expanding my knowledge on inclusive writing. And I really hope to bring those principles to my future work as a marketer and communicator. So I, I thought it was really well done. <laughs> um, and um, so recently we've been seeing a push in the mainstream media for organizations to be sustainable and diverse. And we've been seeing this shift of consumers putting their money into brands that actually align with their values. So when we talked last, I brought up the term woke fishing. So I came across this term recently and it's when organizations catfish themselves as quote unquote woke to attract consumers, but behind the scenes, they don't actually reflect these inclusive, sustainable values that they are putting out. So for example, let's say a company brands themselves as diverse and inclusive, but their catalog models all look the same and behind the scenes, there's no diversity. And there's this disconnect between public versus actual values. Um, this kind of feeling can be enveloped into this term of quote unquote, being woke fish. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, and what I've been curious about is, how can organizations avoid performative activism? And why should organizations strive to actually be diverse and inclusive? Wow, woke fishing. What an interesting term. Right? <laughs> it's a term that reminds me of greenwashing. So I guess woke fishing is like the greenwashing, uh, the EDI version of, of greenwashing. Yeah. Really interesting. <laughs> um, what I've noticed, and um, I'm sure many others have noticed the same thing, is that within the last two years, there's been a sort of renaissance in the equity, diversity, and inclusion, and reconciliation, and anti-racism sphere. I know that this was due to the public outrage that was caused 
by the George Floyd murder in the United States in 2020. As we can recall, that incident resulted in worldwide protest. And um, if we think about it, the police force was almost canceled. People were not willing to put up with racist um, incidents or racist use of force because of racism. That man lost his life and that should not have happened. And the world stood up and the, the world spoke out. And that led to millions of people just wanting to, to join this fight for just, justice and equality. And a lot of businesses businesses and companies recognized that they also had to express solidarity with their social media pages and their websites. But what this has led to is a, for, a type of performative activism. Now, performative activism is something like bandwagon activism. It's, it's a form of activism where people use their social media or their websites to show that they're doing something. Um, what, what this has resulted in is a lot of people adding diversity, equity, diversity, and include, inclusion statements to their websites, but without really actively understanding what is equity, diversity, inclusion, anti-racism, reconciliation, what is it, and what does it mean to do it? What are the direct actions that we have to do to get that done? And that's what I, I have in my book chapter. I talk about direct things that you can be doing um, in your organization to ensure that this happens. And I also talk about um, accountability. How do you make yourself accountable um, for that? Because when you think about it, putting a nice statement on your, your website or on social media and being comfortable with that, what does that change? Who does that help? You have to show exactly what you're doing. Are, is your organization, um, is there underrepresentation still within your organization? Are you working hard to ensure that you have a diverse workforce? Are you working hard to ensure that when you do get this diverse workforce, that you are doing things to ensure that they stay with you, that they feel like they belong, and they want to remain a part of your organization? Are you actively learning, like, this work calls for continuous learning. Are you actively learning? Are you encouraging your, your employees to actively learn and understand what they need to do to really stamp out racism that might be ingrained in the structures that under which they operate? So um, the, the woke fishing might not be intentional. It might be a situation where people just do not know what they're supposed to be doing, but adding these statements on social media uh, and on your websites, that's only the first steps. You, It's time for people to take direct actions and show that they are accountable to the statements that they have on their websites. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I think that it's really important for us as consumers as well to also demand that from our corporations. Well, thank you so, so much for, for our talk today. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And I really hope you have a good rest of your day. 
Oh, thank you again for inviting me. It's um, it's always great to talk about the work that I do, my research interests and my work interests. And I was just pleased that I was interviewed by a co-op student. I think you're doing well. I wish you the best. And I know that there are great things for you in the future. And I'm going to be looking forward to, to seeing um, what you do and, and how you really advance and promote this, this, the importance of using inclusive language. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That's very kind. I'm also looking forward to seeing your future work. I think it's going to be great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow, like, subscribe, whatever your podcast player lets you do. And if you want to learn more about Trace Lynn and other Waterloo alumni, check out the fall 2022 Waterloo magazine. We called this issue The Builders because it highlights people in the UW community who are building a better world, like Trace Lynn is doing with inclusive language. There's a link in the episode description to check it out. This episode of Uncharted was produced and hosted by future Waterloo grad Sarah Bond. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju is an alum and staff member at the University of Waterloo.